Okay, let's see. Open up your Bibles, please, to, I think we're going to start in Luke. Now, you're going to have to find Acts chapter 1 and Mark 16. We're going to be bouncing around a lot this morning. This, of course, is lesson 193b in the book. And I'm subtitling it, The Ascension. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so very much for your faithfulness over these years when I think back that you have kept kept me healthy, kept Terry healthy, Lord, that we have not had to miss but one or two in ten and a half years. All kinds of crises have happened in my life and yet you have been so faithful to me to keep me here, to be able to keep on teaching about your son, your glorious, wonderful son. And we thank you for him. Thank you for the truth of the cross that no matter what's happening in this world, as that song said, no matter politics or anarchy or wars or crime, or still the truth of the gospel is always there. And the hope of, of sure life in your presence for eternity is there for us who know you. Those things don't change. You don't change. Thank you. We love you. And I pray this morning that we would be able to focus again on what your spirit has to say through your word that Jesus Christ alone would be lifted up as he literally was lifted up into your very presence. We love him and we thank you again for loving us so much that you sent him to die for us so that we could spend eternity with you rejoicing forever in what you have done for us and how much you love us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The ninth uh, post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we're going to be looking at this morning and the tenth and the eleventh. There were only 11 recorded post-resurrection appearances of the Lord, and we will look at those three this morning. The ninth one happened to be his third and final private appearance to an individual. An individual. He appeared individually to Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning. Then we know sometime Sunday afternoon he appeared privately to Peter, And now the third private appearance was to James. We do not learn of the Lord's appearance to James from any one of the four gospel accounts. None of them told us about this appearance to James. Who do we learn it from? Again, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 and 7. He is the only one who told us about the fact that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren. And after he had said that, he said, Paul went on to write, that Jesus was seen of James. After the appearance of the Lord to more than 500 brethren, he was, quote, unquote, seen of James. That's all we know, that he was seen of James. Now, by the way, there are some Bible commentaries who say that Jesus appeared to the more than 500 brethren at the time of his ascension. That that is when there was this huge crowd of more than 500 who saw him ascend. But there is a problem with that because then he could not have had his private appearance afterwards to James. Why? He would be in heaven. 
Okay, so he did not appear at the time of his ascension to these 500. I believe it was while he was up in Galilee on that Galilean mountain, as we discussed last week. So here's the question. Which James was this? We know there were a lot of Marys. There were also a lot of Jameses back in that day. So which James was this? Well, this isn't really very difficult to figure out because the Lord had already been seen by the other two James who were prominent. They were both apostles. You had James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, and, you know, his mother was Salome. And then you had James, the son of Alphaeus, who was sometimes known as James the Less. Poor guy. How would you like to go around Catherine the Less? (laughs) Uh, But those two men had already seen the Lord. How do I know that? Because they were both apostles. And by this time, the apostles have seen the Lord at least three or four times. So by the time Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthian church, there was one prominent James. By the way, by the time Paul wrote Corinthians, James, the brother of John, was dead. He died very early. He was the, you know, the first apostle to die. But there was one prominent James that every Christian would have known Paul was speaking about because he was the leader of the Jerusalem council. And he was, so to speak, the first pastor of the Jerusalem church. Everybody knew about this, James. The ninth post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ was with his own half-brother, James. And that, that just thrills me to think about that. James, who back in John 7, verse 5, with the other of the Lord's three half-brothers, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, those four half-brothers of the Lord did not believe that their brother, their older brother, was the Messiah. They were unbelievers. Now, I do not know when James came to believe. Perhaps he heard the reports of the 500 Galilean brethren who had seen Jesus alive on that Galilean mountain. Perhaps, and don't you think, that his mother would have shared a lot of things with James and Joseph Joseph would have been Joseph Jr. (laughs) and Simon and Jude. And don't you think she too would have shared with them that she had seen Jesus alive from the dead? And at least two of the apostles were James's first cousins. John and James were his first cousins. And surely they shared with all of Jesus's half-brothers who were their first cousins that they had seen Jesus alive from the dead. It may be, and I, I tend to think it was like Saul of Tarsus when he was on the road to Damascus and met the Lord, that James was under great conviction. You know, Saul was under great conviction after he had seen Stephen martyred. And the Lord said, you know, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you kicking against the pricks of your own conscience? You know that you really are very, very convicted that Jesus is who he, who he claimed to be. And I think that's probably the way it was with James, that he was under conviction. However, when Jesus privately appeared to him in his resurrected body, I think that's when it was nailed down for James. And James is listed first in the brother, so I think that he was the next in line, you know, the next son of Mary after Jesus. If if they are given in uh, chronological order, it would be James, then Joseph, then Simon, and last of all, the baby brother would be Jude. Ever hear of him? Mm Mm-hmm. 
But I think uh, that that's when it was really nailed down, when he saw his, his brother in his resurrected, glorified body. Now, we don't know of anything that was said at this meeting. All Paul told us, as I told you earlier, was that he was seen of James. That's it. That's all we know. But wouldn't you have loved to have been there and to heard what they said to each other? I, I just It must have been something else. We don't know where it took place. But I would suspect that it was likely while the Lord was still up in Galilee, since James was from Nazareth of Galilee. That seems to make sense that that's... And if that is the case, then I was wrong last week when I said there were only two post-resurrection appearances that took place in Galilee, and all the rest were down in Jerusalem of Judea. If he saw his brother up in Galilee, then there were, I should have known this, three, (laughs) three post-resurrection appearances that took place up in Galilee. So the meeting with James and Jesus must have been absolutely something. I think it would be kind of like a Joseph and his brothers type of reunion. Think of the analogy, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers really were jealous of him, weren't they? Yes, (laughs) they resented him. Now, how do you think it would be Growing up in the same home with an absolutely perfect older brother. I mean, he never did anything wrong. And don't you think those brothers saw that special sparkle that Mary had for Jesus? (laughs) I think there must, you know, these guys were born with their sin nature. And I think there was probably some jealousy in that home, some resentment, kind of like Joseph went through. In Mark 3.21, we had learned long ago that the Lord's brothers all thought that he had some loose marbles, that he wasn't quite right in his head, making the kind of claims that he was making and getting all the religious rulers so upset. But we can be just about positive that at the time of this private meeting, that James fell down prostrate before Jesus. And worshipped him, just like Joseph's brothers did. We do know from Acts 1.13, now I told you I have a finger over in Acts, so when I say Acts, you might want to take a little sneak peek, but we know from Acts 1.13 that the Lord's other three half-brothers, in addition to James and at least two of his sisters, we do know he had at least two half-sisters, that they all came to believe in Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? One of his brothers, Jude, is the author of the epistle by that name, the epistle of Jude that comes right before the book of Revelation. So it was indeed a foretaste. Not only did it look back kind of like with Joseph and his brothers, that was a picture of Jesus, finally being recognized by his own half-brothers, but it's a foretaste of the day when all of the Lord's half-brothers in the flesh, the Jewish people, will at long last know him as their God. It says in Zechariah 12.10, when he comes back at his second coming, that they will look upon him whom they pierced. Who pierced Jesus? I thought it was the Romans. No, no. Really, it was the Jews who forced the Romans to pierce him. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as an only son, as 
you know, God's only son. They will recognize him as Lord and Savior and bow down and believe in him. This is a picture of that, isn't it? It's also beautiful. Well, James, we know, became a vibrant believer. We know James was raised in a very godly home with Mary and Joseph based on what he says in the book of James. He is the author of the book of James. He wrote chronologically the first New Testament book. Now, I know that Matthew comes first. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But technically, the very first book written was the book of James. It was written only some 12 years after the Lord's crucifixion. First one written. And it's a very, you know, talk about the rubber meeting the road. It is the most practical book in the New Testament for, you know, daily Christian living. And he very humbly never claims his relationship to Jesus. Now, don't you think that if you were a half-sister of Jesus and you wrote a book, you might say, Catherine, a half-sister of Jesus. (laughs) I mean, like that would be number one on the... (laughs) No, maybe not. (laughs) But um, not today it wouldn't be. But he didn't ever claim his relationship to Jesus. Instead, you know how he refers to himself in the book of James? James, the doulos of the Lord of glory. Doulos means bond slave, the bond servant. Did he recognize his brother's deity? Oh, yes, he calls him the Lord of glory. Did Jude, the Lord's youngest half-brother, recognize his deity? Yes. Do you know how he refers to Jesus? He calls him the only wise God, our Savior. Think of that. Think of what a testimony that is for the lordship and the deity of Jesus Christ. That two of his brothers, and I'm sure all four did, but two of them claim that he is God. That means growing up in his home. They never once saw him sin. Word, thought, or deed. That's a really strong testimony for Jesus Christ. That they call him God Because they, I mean, they were saying basically that he's God because we never once saw him sin. If they had seen him sin once, they wouldn't call him God. You get it? Wow, that is really strong. I don't know how many times we think of that when we're witnessing to people, but we should point that out. So such was his godliness. I'm going back to James now. Such was his godliness and such was his zeal that he did become the first leader of the Jerusalem church. He also became the first leader of the Jerusalem council. And I imagine that Paul knew about the fact that Jesus had met privately with James because James and Paul met. Paul met James, the half-brother of Jesus, on several occasions. So that's all I'm going to say about the ninth recorded appearance of the Lord. Now we're going to move on to the tenth one. And for this, you need to look at Luke 24, Luke 24, verses 44 to 49, But don't forget to keep your finger in Acts 1 because we'll be going back there as well. Now, the Lord, we find, the Lord and his disciples are back in Jerusalem for this 10th recorded appearance. And they are probably once again in the upper room and he is teaching them. Now, according to Bible chronologists, verses 44 to 49 did not take place on Resurrection Sunday night which it sounds like, and I think I made this mistake actually back when we were teaching this earlier, 
it sounds like when you just read through Luke 24 that this is all the same day. It's when the Emmaus disciples, you know, meet Jesus and then they're in Emmaus, but they rush back to Jerusalem and they burst in the upper room and they're going to tell the disciples what they saw, that they saw Jesus. But before they can speak, everybody tells them that the Lord had been seen, that Cephas had seen the Lord, Peter had seen the Lord. And then, uh, of course, then the Emmaus disciples tell their story. And while they're speaking, Jesus suddenly appears in their midst. And then it goes on and it looks like from verse 43, and he ate, you know, honeycomb and whatever, broiled fish in front of him. Verse 43, he took it and ate. And then it, in verse 44, it says, and he said unto them. So it looks like it's all the same day, doesn't it? That it just went on. But Bible chronologists say, based on verses 49 and 50, that after he said these things, he led them out to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and ascended that this is later. This is very close. This is at the very end of his 40 days on earth in his post-resurrection appearances. So what we find Luke does is what we have found oftentimes in our study of the life of Christ. He just skipped between verses 43 and 44. He skipped all those appearances up in Galilee. And that's not uncommon. Haven't we found that to be true in our life of Christ study? That sometimes some of the gospel writers will just skip, skip big portions of what the Lord did. That's why it has been such an advantage for us to study all four gospels at the same time. Because then we get the chronology. You know, you have to be in one one week and one the next week. And so we get the whole chronology of everything Jesus did as best as scholars can figure step by step. And in doing that, do you realize that after ten and a year, ten and a half years, we have not missed a single event in the Lord Jesus's life, earthly life. Not a single word he spoke have we skipped over because we've done all four. That's why it's taken us longer, but we've gotten his whole earthly life in sequence and not missed anything. If we had only studied Luke, for example, what would we have missed between verses 43 and 44? (laughs) The post-resurrection appearances up in Galilee. Well, from the Lord's words, as I said to his men, in verse 49, where he says, Tarry in Jerusalem, after which he leads them out toward Bethany, the Mount of Olives, to witness his ascension. It is apparent that his teaching in verses 44 to 49 took place at the end of his 40 days after his crucifixion. Perhaps they're all back in Jerusalem at his request. I would imagine he said, we're going to Jerusalem. And they all followed him. Maybe he even accompanied them down to Jerusalem from Galilee. I don't know because we're not told. But if he did accompany them back to Jerusalem, what do you think he did the whole way there? He taught. We know in those 40 days that he taught them an awful lot. We know from Acts 1-3 where it says Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of the apostles 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining the kingdom of God. We know he taught these men a lot because if you just listen to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you hardly can know it's the same man. His understanding of the Old Testament scriptures is amazing, incredible. So they got a lot of good, solid teaching during these 40 days. Now, I think that we can safely surmise that the Lord appeared to his men many, many more times than are recorded for us. <clears throat> we only know of 11 recorded appearances, but there were more. And those occasions, as sweet as the fellowship would have been, were all about teaching. 
Hadn't he just told them in his great commission that they were to go into all the world and make disciples by doing what? Teaching, teaching all things concerning him. So now that they finally fully grasped the full truth of his person, that he was not just a man, Messiah, but that he, and for Israel. He wasn't just a man Messiah for Israel, but he was the God Savior for the whole world. Now that they finally got a grasp on that truth, they really have ears to hear many of the same truths that he had previously tried to teach them, you know, from the other side of the cross. Now they could understand the prophecies that he fulfilled. Now they could understand all the picture types of him that he would have shown them from the Old Testament scriptures. They were able now to completely understand the absolute necessity of his sufferings and his death so that man could be included in God's eternal kingdom. And his teaching to them is summarized in what we see in Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. So let's look at those verses together. It says, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. So isn't that a repetition? I said these to you before, guys, but now you can hear them. Fine. That all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. That's the Old Testament. How many divisions does he take the Old Testament and divide it into? Three, wouldn't you know it? Three. (laughs) Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. (coughs) And then he gives a sermon again, another one that I would love to have had recorded for us, but we don't. Uh, Actually, not a sermon. It's a teaching session in verse 45, where it simply says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer. Remember how he said the same thing to the two on the road to Emmaus? Look at verse 26. When he had said, ought not Christ to have suffered these things? He says the same thing again here when he says it behooved Christ to suffer. It was mandatory, necessary that he suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. What's that? Holy Spirit. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. These men were not being sent out into the world to share with the world their personal experiences with Jesus. You know, he did this and he did that and it was just so wonderful. Although that would be part of their sharing, right? That they would share what they had actually seen and and saw. That would be part of their witness. But they, more importantly, they were to share the truth from the word of God about Jesus. How he fulfilled, you know, word of God then was the Old Testament how he fulfilled prophecies and etc. And to do that, they needed to have a clear comprehension of the Old Testament scriptures, uncluttered by preconceived rabbinic teaching and tradition. And so the Lord says, you know, that 
Uh, he was going to teach them everything from the Old Testament, which included those three. You know, the law of Moses is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. And then you got your prophets and the Psalms, three divisions, which is so perfect. Again, number three. Now, remember back in John 20, verse 22, in his first post-resurrection appearance to his apostles, he gave them help so that they would have insight into understanding the truths of Scripture by breathing on them the Holy Spirit. Remember, he said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. That was to give them help while he's going to be teaching them the next 40 days. He had tried to tell them many times during his earthly ministry, he had tried to tell them how he must suffer and die so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But we found that they never wanted to hear it. Whenever he started to talk about suffering and death, they stopped up their ears, didn't they? They did not want to hear it. And you notice that they never bothered to ask questions about that. They would just say, no, Lord, may it never be. They never said, why do you have to suffer and die? He would have loved to have told them, but they didn't want to hear it. And even if he had taught them, and maybe he did, they did not hear it. And don't you find that's how it is in the world today? People don't want to hear, they don't have ears to hear because they don't want to hear. It's all about the will. You know, you go to share them with them the gospel, and they don't want to hear it, so they don't hear it. (laughs) But now they did. Now they did. They were ready to finally hear with listening ears, with spiritual ears. And don't you know it helped them tremendously to be sitting there listening to their master teach them in his resurrected body. That helped their ears really open up. (laughs) And it also helped them tremendously that now they were on the other side of the cross and the other side of the empty tomb. Hasn't that been a great advantage to you and I? You know, we, we really can't understand what it was like for them. To look at a man who claims he's God, that would be a little difficult, wouldn't it? Yeah, and to, say, to listen to him say he's going to die but rise on the third day, uh, I don't think so. So, you know, we can emphasize, we have a great advantage with hindsight. And now they do, because they're on the other side of the cross as well. So as he had done on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his unnamed teaching companion, the Lord opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. It was just like light bulbs going off over their heads. You know, even saved people need to have our understanding opened. We do. And we get that every week. My eyes are opened every week. You know, we may no longer be in the kingdom of darkness, but we are still in the dark about many things in the scripture. David prayed a wonderful prayer that I'd like to pray often when I go to study the scripture. He prayed, open mine eyes, Lord, give me understanding. I pray that before I study. And you should do the same thing when you go to do your homework. Open mine eyes, Lord, that I might see things I never saw before. Give me insight into those rich, deep truths in your word. The Apostle Paul. I can't think of a man who knew the Old Testament scripture better than Paul. He had studied under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He knew his Old Testament. It's obvious when you read what he wrote in the New Testament. And yet he understood he still had a lot more to learn. Remember, he's the one who said that I may know you He acknowledged he had a lot more to know about the Lord. We have so much more to learn because I am convinced that the word of God, just like its author, is infinite. 
if we did turn around and study the life of Christ all over again, maybe next time take 20 years to do it. <laughs> a lot of us wouldn't still be around for that. <laughs> but do you know we would still learn truths that we missed this time around? We would. Because it just goes layer by layer, deeper and deeper and deeper. and you can, It's infinite. You can never get to the bottom of the word of God. So, the veil was rent from the hearts and the minds of the apostles so that they could see into the holy of holies. They got a glimpse of the divine wisdom of God in having provided atonement for the sins of man in his son so that man might dwell in his holy presence forever. And that plan necessitated the sufferings and the death and the offering of the sinless blood of Christ, the only one qualified to be our sacrificial sin substitute, our kinsman redeemer, only Christ, one mediator between God and man. He ta taught them how all things concerning the Messiah were fulfilled, not only what was written concerning his sufferings, but also what was written concerning his kingdom. You see, these things had been joined together by God, and what God has joined together cannot be put asunder. You cannot divorce the sufferings of Christ from the kingdom of Christ. The cross of necessity preceded the crown. You, we couldn't have had the kingdom without the cross. Now, we have seen that when these men had been with the Lord, um, the other side of the cross, you know, before he died, uh, that they gloried in the idea that they would hold positions of honor in his kingdom. You do remember, of course, when James and John sent their mother to request the seats of honor when the Lord came into his kingdom. And they were always quarreling quite a bit. Even on the night of the Lord's arrest, they were quarreling about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Kind of immature, right? Yes, yes, very much so. Um, and they thought that that kingdom was imminent. And they thought that it was political. And so when he died, they were very, very, very sadly disappointed. Not only because they loved him so much, which they did, but also because they had hoped so much in an imminent earthly kingdom that would overthrow their enemies, Rome. They were also disappointed, however, because they lost their hoped-for positions of glory and honor in that kingdom. But see, the Lord here in verse 48 is telling them that they do have positions of honor in his kingdom because they are his witnesses. What an honor. They are eyewitnesses of, of the Lord of glory. And they are going to be sent into the world to witness of him. Is that not a great honor? I can't think of a greater honor. Essentially, he tells them this. He says, you are to carry word of me to the world. Not only to report these things as a matter of breaking news, you know, flash news report, Jesus of Nazareth lived and died and rose again, but to assert them as evidence in the age-long trial of God versus Satan. Evidence that the adversary has been cast down and defeated. You are now assured you, my eyewitnesses, are assured of that defeat by my victory over sin and death, Satan's greatest weapons of warfare against man, sin and death. With the same spirit, 
And with the same scripture that has enlightened your minds, you are to go forth and enlighten minds the world over. Go and tell the world that Christ suffered as it was written of him. Go and preach Christ crucified and do not ever be ashamed of the cross or the sufferings of the servant savior of Jehovah. Tell the world what he suffered. Tell the world why it behooved Christ to die. Show them every one of the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled or will be fulfilled because of the truth of my death and my burial and my third day bodily resurrection. Tell the world for whom I suffered that it was absolutely necessary to take away the sin of the world and deliver mankind from eternal death and destruction. Tell the world how you saw me after my third day resurrection. You saw my pierced hands and feet and my pierced side. You saw me eat food in your presence. You touched me. You handled me. You know that I resurrected bodily in a flesh and bone body, but no longer limited by time and space. Tell them all the many infallible truths that I have given to you of this. And preach the repentance of sin in my name, by my authority. Call men everywhere to repent. Tell them that the God who made them and the Lord who bought them expects and requires them to turn from the worship of gods they have made with their own hands and their own minds, devised from their own imaginations, and turn to the worship of the true and living God. Tell them to cease from serving the interests of this world and the flesh and to turn to the service of God in Christ and to mortify their sinful lusts and their habits and practices. Your great honor in the kingdom of God, he would say to his beloved apostles, is to spread the great gospel privilege of the remission of sins. What greater honor is there than to go and tell a guilty world, a world that stands convicted and condemned before the judgment bar of a holy God, that all who repent and believe shall be fully pardoned. What a great message. Give the world the sure hope of eternal salvation in me. And as I commissioned you from that Galilean mountain, You are to take this message and you are to preach it to all nations. You must disperse yourselves just like the sons of Noah after the flood. Some going one way, some going another. And carry the light of this truth to the nations of the world who are yet in darkness. That was their commission. And guess what? That is our commission yet today. It's a big one, a vast, vast undertaking that they were called to and that you and I are called to, especially considering the opposition that they would encounter and the sufferings that would be each of theirs and the church has suffered. And there's persecution big time going on today all over this world and it's coming our way too. It's actually already started. 
We already know from the Great Commission that the Lord's all authoritative power, both in heaven and earth, assures fruit for their labor. Because his power is greater than the power of those in the kingdom of darkness. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Don't forget that. We also learned of his continual presence with them and with us. And when he said, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And now in verse 49, he gives them another promise. The promise of the Father. When did the Father promise the coming of the Holy Spirit? I know Jesus did. In his farewell discourse in John 16, he promised that the Comforter would come. He wouldn't leave them as orphans. When did the Father promise the coming of the Spirit? Well, throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you a few places. Isaiah 44, 3. Joel 2.28, Jeremiah 31.33, Ezekiel 36.27. I don't know. Oh, come to me later. I don't want to stop. Okay, come to me later. I'll give them to you. This is the promise of the Father and of the Son of being endued from on high with the power of the Holy Spirit. He is promising them that in a little while, they're to tarry in Jerusalem, but in a little while the Spirit would be poured out upon them. As never before. (laughs) And they would be furnished with all the gifts and all the graces necessary to carry out their assignment. Could they have done what they did without the power of the Spirit? Absolutely not. So they must wait in Jerusalem until they received a supernatural power, not their own, but from on high. The Holy Spirit would not only baptize them into the church, the body of Christ, but he would be their new teacher, Jesus Christ. Their teacher had left, you know, 10 days earlier in the ascension. He would leave them. They were going to have a new teacher and a new comforter, a new one guiding them in all truth, and a new one bringing to their remembrance all that Christ had taught them. In and of themselves, the apostles could never, ever have planted his gospel in this world, laid the foundation for his church, set up his kingdom in the world as they did, if, it had not, if they had not been enabled by the Holy Spirit to do so. Their achievements, and they really did turn their world upside down, and the world has never been the same since. Started with 11 men, and here we are today. world has never been the same since. Their achievements prove that there was an excellency of power going along with them. And in them. And the time was growing short for the performing of this particular promise, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Because the descent of the Spirit took place four days after the ascent of the Christ. On that day, ten days later, would be the day of Pentecost, another Jewish feast. The apostles would then begin to take their message to the whole world, beginning where? Beginning at Jerusalem which on the Feast of Pentecost was full of Jewish people from all over the world. The Lord had previously scattered many of the Jewish people. He's, you know, pre-planned everything. So that when they're gathered in Jerusalem again for this feast, and they hear the gospel message in their own native tongues, they take that message back to all the countries from which they came, right? So you see how the Lord immediately... He even brought Rome in at that time because Rome made the the road system so that they could easily travel everywhere in the world. It was just all pre-orchestrated. And think of those words. 
beginning at Jerusalem. Do you know how much grace is in those three words? How much forgiveness is found in those words beginning at Jerusalem? The gospel message was first to be dispersed, declared publicly from the most wicked city on planet Earth. You know, he could have said beginning at Galilee. The Galileans, you know, received me a little bit better than you guys did. At least they didn't kill me. Well, they tried one time to push them off a cliff in Nazareth. But maybe he could have said beginning at Samaria. Actually, the Samaritans did receive him pretty well. Or beginning anywhere, right? But where did he say? Beginning at Jerusalem. I call it the most wicked city in the world because, even though we say, well, how can you say that? That's the holy city, Jerusalem. Well, it was the most wicked as far as its accountability to God based on privilege. Most privileged city in the world. Just like today. You know what? America is wicked. We are wicked. We're more wicked than a lot of countries in darkness that don't even have the Bible. Why? Because of our accountability based on our privilege. We are. We need to pray for our nation. Jerusalem, represented by her leaders had not only killed many of God's Old Testament messengers, his prophets, but she was proud. She was self-righteous. She was downright selfish. She kept the truth of the living God and his promised Messiah to herself. Why? Because she hated the Gentiles. She looked down her long, pious nose at the Gentiles, didn't she? She was terribly, awfully bigoted. And she was hypocritical even in the practice of her own religion, Judaism. Worst of all, she was willfully, willfully unbelieving in the face of truth concerning Jesus of Nazareth. But her culpability climaxed when she killed him. She killed her own promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, the son of the living God. You can't get any more guilty than that. And yet, Jesus loved her with what kind of love? Agape love, unconditional love. He loved Israel, still does, and Jerusalem. Remember when he wept over her? And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets. And you know what he said? How oft I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her biddies under my arms. But you would not. Receive me. It was willful, wasn't it? And he even prayed for her from the cross. Father, forgive them. You, that's unconditional love. And now he tells his men to begin their obedience to the Great Commission right there in Jerusalem. That, that is marvelous grace. That is amazing grace and forgiveness. You know, we should never think that anyone is too wicked or too evil to be saved. Never. Only the Lord knows when someone has crossed over and become too hardened to be saved. We don't know that. We can't see the heart. We should never think anyone is too evil to be saved. This is an amazing statistic, but church historians tell us that out of the 200,000 full-time residents of Jerusalem, more than 100,000 were saved before the end of the first century, including many of the priests and Pharisees. Ooh, that is grace. Well, it's from Luke again, but over in Acts 1-3. Um, 
Oh, let me, first of all, before you go to Acts, let me read verses 50 and 51 of Luke 24. Are you still in Luke 24? Okay, let's look at verses 50 and 51. It says, and after he had that teaching session, he led them out as far as to Bethany. Who lived in Bethany? Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Simon, the former leper. Four people we know about. Jesus had had great reception, hospitable reception in Bethany. So he leads his men out as far as to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Woo. Now over in Acts 1-3, Luke, again, you know, is the author of um, Acts. We learn that, and this is the only place we learn, that this was on the 40th day of the Lord's post-resurrection time on earth. It was on the 40th day that he led his men out of the city, the city of Jerusalem, and to the backside of the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's also in Acts that we learn that it was the Mount of Olives. He went to the Mount of Olives, the backside, which was near to and in sight of that little town of Bethany. So the citizens of Bethany, if they had looked over, could have seen the ascension, right? <clears throat> Both the Mount of Olives and Bethany were two of the Lord's favorite places during the times of his visits to Jerusalem, weren't they? He loved to go and spend the night with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They loved him and he loved them. But he also liked to go to the Mount of Olives when he wanted peace and quiet and time of prayer with his father. So it's appropriate that this is the place of his ascension on the Mount of Olives, but within sight of Bethany. Now, think of this. The last time that the Lord Jesus had made the trip from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives was 43 days earlier on the night of his arrest. He and his men again, as in this scene, had been gathered together in the upper room for the Passover supper. And there, as here, he was teaching them. He was teaching them many truths that should have comforted them for what was ahead. Remember, he gave them the great comfort chapter, John 14. He told them about the vine and the branches in John 15. He taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 16. And then he prayed for them. Well, he prayed for, you know, high priestly prayer in John 17. But after he had transitioned the Passover supper into the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn together. And then what did he do? He led them out of Jerusalem. They would have left the upper room, left Jerusalem, out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, and up into the Mount of Olives. Right? They didn't know it yet. His men did not yet know it. But that was going to be the appointed day for the Lord to be lifted up on a cross. And now again, God led his men from the upper room, out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives. Again, they do not know it, but it is the appointed day for the Lord Jesus to be lifted up. Not on a cross this time but lifted up into heaven. And speaking of lifting up, the last gesture the Lord Jesus did on planet Earth was to lift up his nail-pierced hands 
It even says that. Lift up. He lifted up his hands in verse 50. He lifted up his hands to bless his men. How appropriate that the one who stretched out his hands to willingly allow them to be nailed to a cross for our sins left this world lifting up his hands to bless those for whom he died. And the last thing he said on earth, even though we do not have the words, was a blessing for his people. How fitting is that picture? That he left this world blessing his own people. And that's fitting because he was about to begin another work. That of being our intercessor. Praying for us as our great high priest. Well, we are told that as the words of his blessing were coming forth from his mouth. And resting wondrously on the souls of his men. The crowning wonder of a life full of wonder took place. It was time for the blast off. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, blast off. The Lord, can you imagine this? Began to lift off planet Earth, defying the law of gravity. Not really that difficult for him. He was the one who came up with the law of gravity, you know? He was a great creator. And he began to ascend before his men. I just love a picture of their faces. <laughs> he began to ascend openly, visibly, and bodily into the sky before the astonished eyes of his disciples. You know, the resurrection which was the lifting up of Christ's body from the dead, that had been done in the dark, in the secret. You know, nobody saw there was no witnesses to the Lord's resurrection, was there? The lifting up of his body from the dead. In contrast, the lifting up of Christ's body from earth was witnessed. It was witnessed. Acts 1.9 says, while they beheld, he was taken up. You see, this time the Lord did not just, you know, suddenly vanish from their sight as he had been doing in his previous post-resurrection appearances. We know from when he was with the two on the road to Emmaus, when he was sitting down blessing the food, you know, all of a sudden they recognized him and what happened? Poof, he was gone. He didn't do that this time. He wanted his men to see his ascension. It needed to be confirmed to them. The evidence of his resurrection was established by seeing him after he had risen, right? They knew he had risen when they saw him risen. But the evidence of his ascension into heaven could not be confirmed that way. Why? Nobody goes to heaven until they die. I mean, when they die, then they'd see it was confirmed, you know? There he is in heaven. But uh, otherwise, they, they wouldn't know that he actually did ascend into heaven. So it was arranged by the Godhead that Jesus would ascend in open daylight and in the presence of his apostles, and not while they were sleeping, or not while they were fishing, or not while they turned their head and, you know, weren't paying attention, all of a sudden, you know, he's gone. But while they were alert and while they were looking right at him, if he had vanished from earth secretly, or maybe, you know, in the middle of the night sometime, the apostles would have been confused about his disappearance not knowing where he had gone. 
or even if he had gone. And they might, instead of taking the gospel out to the world, they might have stayed around for a while or searched through all the cities looking for him or just waited and waited and waited and think, when is he going to appear again? But when they saw him leave this way, they had no doubt whatsoever that he had indeed ascended to heaven. That's going to be confirmed to them by two angels. And, of course, they saw it with their own eyes. But as they're watching, in silent amazement, they watch, you know, until a cloud received him out of their sight. Again, that's in Acts 1.9. They watch him until they can't see him anymore. I, I can identify with this. And, and they stand gazing, looking up at the sky, even though they can't see him because he's covered by the clouds. But my son, I have watched my son take off in his F-18 fighter jet plane on numerous occasions. Well, you talk about your heart going blah, 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 blah. But he takes off, and then he'll immediately just go straight up. And it's like just a matter of seconds, he disappears from my view. But you know what I do? I just stand there gazing up the crest. <laughs> and that's what these guys, you know, they're still looking up. But he's gone. You know what we could call our Life of Christ study? From a cradle in Bethlehem to a cloud at Bethany. Life of Christ. Now, even though they couldn't see him, as I said, after the cloud cover blocked their view, we do know from other scripture the rest of the story. We know the rest of the ascent. We know he didn't go to Mars or Pluto. Or <laughs> he went up beyond the stars and galaxies of his own creative universe and went into the third heaven where he had lived since eternity past. He was welcomed, oh, can't you imagine? Welcomed with the thundering praise and worship of literally tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of holy angels. Standing ovation. And all the redeemed saints of the Old Testament days as he entered into the glory he had with his father from eternity past. And we know he was also welcomed by somebody else, his father. And we know what his father said. Psalm 110, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Mark confirmed the sitting down of Jesus on heaven's throne. Go over to Mark 16, 19. Mark, this is so interesting. Mark confirmed the sitting down of Jesus on the right hand of God the Father as the very last action of Christ in his gospel account. Luke's last action was the lifting up the, of the hands and the blessing. That's actually the Lord's last action on planet Earth. Now we have from Mark the Lord's first action in heaven. <laughs> he sat down. And think of this. Oh, this is so fascinating. Mark really was inspired by who? Peter. Peter. You could call it the Gospel of Peter. Mark wrote it, but Peter inspired it. And who inspired Peter? The Holy Spirit. All right. Now, Mark, Mark focused all about the actions and the miracles of Jesus. He's all about the works. You know, Peter was work-oriented action, you know, man of action. Matthew focused on the sermons of Jesus, the message. Mark focuses on the works, the miracles of Jesus. Luke 
focused on the parables of Jesus, and John taught us the doctrine of Jesus. But go back to Mark. Mark was all about the works. That's why it says immediately a hundred times, I think. I don't know. Immediately he did this, and then he did that, and immediately he did this. And so what is so fascinating is that Mark ends his gospel by the Lord sitting down. Why? Because his work was done. Isn't that beautiful? He sat down. Now a man in a glorified human body is seated on the throne of God. Because as the Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, he has every right to be there. His prayer of John 17, 5 is answered. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. To this day, the citizens of heaven witness the glory that belongs to the Son, and the glory which we who also belong to the Son, will one, we too will one day witness that glory. I said that wrong. Remember the whole point of his high priestly prayer got us down to verse 24 of John 17, where he said really his desire, the desire of his heart was that his own, his, the love gifts that the Father had given to the Son, that they would behold him in his glory. And one day we will, with our own two eyes. Those who have gone on before us, who knew the Lord, they're witnessing that glory right now. Doesn't that just excite you? Well, the apostles had their gaze riveted on the sky, even after the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now, I don't know if that was a normal cloud cover, if it was a cloudy day, or if that cloud was a whole lot of holy angels, or if that was maybe even the Shekinah glory cloud. I don't know. But they, they stood there gazing up, and while they did, suddenly two men in white apparel appeared at their side. And they were well trained. They had been trained by Jesus, because guess what these holy angels do? They ask a question. <laughs> Just like their Lord. I think the holy angels are always scratching their head about us. They just cannot figure us, you know, out. These humans. Why are you men, you know, you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up in heaven? He's gone. He went back home, just like he told you. You know, I go to my father's house to prepare many mansions. Why are you standing there looking up? Why don't you get busy? He gave you an assignment, right? Get busy. Finally, guess what? Finally, the men get to see the angels. I don't know, maybe this was the tomb shelf and the tombstone angel. Remember those two guys? They never got to see them. And remember when the women told them about the angels, what did the men say? Uh, idle tales, idle tales. But now, now their unbelief is behind them. And so finally, the angels can appear to them. And the men finally get to see the angels. And what is the message the angels give them? This same Jesus. This is Acts 1.11, I'm sorry. Acts 1.11. <clears throat> this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven. So we know where he went. He went to heaven shall so come in like manner. That's interesting. That's important to underline. In like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. What are they saying? Jesus is going to return one day. And it's going to be the same Jesus that we have been studying for ten and a half years. 
the same Jesus of the four Gospels. Not some other Jesus of men's imagination. Not a never crucified, never buried, never resurrected Jesus. Not some prophet of Allah who was given the same name. Not the Jesus of liberal reductionism or any less than 100% God, 100% man Jesus of the false religions and cults. Not some lovey-dovey universalist Jesus who accepts everybody into his heaven, sin and all. The one who will return to earth from heaven at the appointed time that his father has set, and only he knows that time, will be the same Jesus who departed from this world some 2,000 years ago. His mission, however, will be different. Instead of coming as the Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world and to seek and to save that which was lost, he will come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah to take back this earth from its usurper, Satan, and to judge those who war against his beloved Israel. Pray that America will never turn our back on Israel. And to reveal herself, himself to her, like Joseph did with his brothers, and to see her repent in true saving faith. And of course, he will come back to set up his 1,000-year earthly kingdom, where finally, finally, at long, long last, peace and justice and truth will reign under the only government that works. You know what the only government that will ever work with people is going to be? Not a democracy. A government of the people just doesn't cut it. Not even a republic. The only government on earth that works is a benevolent, theocratic dictatorship. When God in Christ reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And this will be, by the way, the second part of the second coming. After the seven years of tribulation, Revelation 19, when the Lord comes back to earth. I'm not, this is not describing the rapture of the church. Okay, because he doesn't come back to earth. He comes in the air for us. But in like manner, that kind of is the clue. Because he left from earth, he'll come back to earth at the end of the tribulation. In like manner tells us that Jesus, as he rose visibly, how will he return? Visibly. It says in Revelation 1-7 that every eye will see him. He will return visibly. In like manner means that just as he rose bodily, he will also return bodily. Not just some spiritual kingdom, you know. Bodily. Earthly kingdom. It means that just as he ascended from the Mount of Olives, guess where he's going to return? Mount of Olives. It's predicted in Zechariah 14.4. When he does land on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in half. Also, as he ascended into a cloud, he's going to return coming in the clouds. Daniel 7.13, Matthew 24.30, and again, Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And when he returns, guess who's going to be with him? You and I, his bride. In the meantime, however, until he comes back, there was a lot of work for the apostles to do. There's a lot of work yet for the church to do. Much to accomplish. Go back to Luke. It began 
Their work began by obeying his command to tarry, to wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so let's read what they did. Verses 52 and 53, this is Luke closing up. It says, and they, that's the disciples, worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. The disciples did go back to Jerusalem, as they were told. They went back with great joy, great, great, exceeding joy. And for the next 10 days, what did they do? It says they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. You know what's interesting again? Luke began, I don't know if you can remember, those of you who were with us, 10 years ago, Luke began his gospel with one believer in the temple. And his name was Zacharias. He was the father of John the Baptist, who would introduce the Lamb of God to the nation of Israel. Luke began his gospel with one man in the temple. He ends now his account with many believers in the temple, worshiping the Lamb of God, and getting ready to introduce him to the entire world. What began with one man who lost his voice, remember that? Because he did not believe the message of heaven, ended with many men finally finding their voices of praise and worship and bold testimony because they had found the faith that changed them from the inside out and made them absolutely new creatures in Christ. Well, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Lord's resurrection, 10 days after his ascension, the promise of the Father and the promise of the Son came, and he filled them for the task that they were to accomplish And now we've closed up every gospel except Mark. Would you turn to Mark? This is out of order how they close up. You know, John closed up first, then Matthew, then Luke, and now Mark. Look at the last verses in Mark. (coughs) Mark ends his gospel account telling us this. And this, remember, is Peter, really, Peter. What Peter does in this last verse of Mark is give us a succinct synopsis of the whole book of Acts. (laughs) Peter put Acts in one sentence. Here it is. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. That's Peter's summary of the whole book of Acts. Boy, he really gets right to the point, doesn't he? (laughs) So then, the first coming of the Lord Jesus was over. It had fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies. Right? In fact, they say 333, wouldn't you know, (laughs) of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the Lord's first coming. But I got news for you. There are many, many 
Old Testament prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And as every single one of the Old Testament prophecies concerning his first coming were fulfilled precisely to the very detail. We were amazed sometimes at the precise detail in which they were fulfilled. And as they were fulfilled literally, so shall also all those prophecies about his second coming be fulfilled precisely to the detail. Some of them we don't yet get, like they didn't get it all pieced together before his first coming. And sometimes it's confusing to us how it's all going to work out, but when it happens, it's going to be to the precise detail, and it's also going to be literally. He is going to come back literally to this world. And I hope it is soon, don't you? Maranatha! Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to close with a benediction, a doxology that was written by the Lord's youngest half-brother, Jude. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.